There's a story of a young man who came to his boss and asked for the day off to attend his grandmother's funeral. His boss said, sure. The next day, the young man was talking to his boss. The boss said, do you believe in resurrection from the dead? The young man replied, yes. The boss retorted, well, interesting, because after you left work yesterday for your grandmother's funeral, your grandmother came to pay you a surprise visit at work to take you to lunch. I'm sure you can relate to this story here in the Philippines. Because parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts have died and resurrected about three or four times, serving as convenient excuses to borrow money or take the week off if HR isn't really keeping track. As we celebrate another Easter, remembering Jesus' rising from the dead, what is the impact or change in our lives knowing that we serve a risen Savior? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ affect our way of living? Does it in any way transform our lives? I believe we all know well the stories and the events that transpired that Sunday morning, three days after Jesus was crucified and died. We have been reminded of the story so often that it has perhaps lost its significance. Maybe it's been a while since we have thought about the implications of Christ's resurrection in our lives. So let's do just that. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we take a look at a few verses in this chapter of Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And from our study of this chapter, we want to draw out five biblical principles as it relates to the resurrection of Christ. I read now verses 1 to 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul begins this chapter by laying plainly the essence of the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, in two verses. He wanted to show, number one, that the essence of the gospel message is Jesus' death for our sins and His resurrection to affirm this truth. The essence of the gospel message is Jesus' death for our sins and His resurrection to affirm this truth. The first part of the gospel message is found in verse 3, where it is stated that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself died. And the reason for His death was to deal with mankind's sin problem, meaning Jesus died to take upon Himself our sins and take the punishment of death we deserve. And all of this was in accordance with the Scriptures, meaning that it was part of God's plan to save the world and give hope to the hopeless. Richard Bandler tells a story about visiting a mental institution and dealing with a man who insisted he was Jesus Christ, not metaphorically, not in spirit, but in the flesh. One day, Bandler walked in to meet this man. Are you Jesus, he said? Yes, my son, the man replied. Bandler said, I'll be back in a minute. This left the man a little bit confused. Within three or four minutes, Bandler came back holding a measuring tape. Asking the man to hold out his arms, Bandler measured the lengths of his arms and his height from head to toe. After that, Bandler left. The man claiming to be Christ became a little concerned. A little while later, Bandler came back with a hammer, some large spike nails, and a long set of boards. He began to pound the boards into the form of a cross. The man asked, what are you doing? As Richard put the last nail in the cross, he said, Are you Jesus? Again, the man said, Yes, my son. 
Bandler said, then you know why I'm here and what I'm doing. As Bandler reached for the man to put him on the cross. Somehow the man who was faking his mental condition suddenly realized who he really was. His actions and acts didn't seem like such a good idea. I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. The man started yelling as he ran out of the room. Case closed. My friends, the true Jesus Christ volitionally and willingly died for our sins on the cross because of His unconditional love for us. Now, the second essential part of the gospel message is found in verse 4, where it is stated that Jesus was buried, meaning He really did die. But miraculously, He conquered death and rose from the dead on the third day, Sunday, in accordance with the Scripture, meaning this was again part of God's plan. The gospel message in its totality is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and His resurrection confirmed that His death on our behalf saved us from our sins and the penalty of eternal death. So just as Christ conquered death, we too can conquer eternal death if we place our trust in Jesus Christ. That's truly good news. That's great news that through Jesus Christ we have life. It is a life that is abundant and eternal But to have this new life in Christ, we have to believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and resurrected from the dead. I know many of us already know the essence of the gospel message, but it is worth reminding all of us because our world today likes to add to the gospel message. You see, nowhere in these verses about the gospel message is there anything about having all of your problems go away or disappear. There is nothing in these verses about being healed from your physical or mental sicknesses. There's nothing in the gospel message about you becoming monetarily rich. The core of the good news message is about a Savior who died and rose again for our sins, as was the plan of God to give us salvation and eternal life. That is the message we should be sharing to the world and not adding or taking away from it, because then we are not sharing the biblical gospel, and it does a disservice to the listeners. They may think that by accepting Jesus, They will be healed or come into a lot of money or have their problems go away. But those things are never promised in the Bible while we live on earth. The gospel is that salvation which otherwise we could not obtain has been made available to all people through Jesus Christ. Maybe this example will help you understand the point I'm making. Let's say you are Ukrainian and are living in the city of Mariupol and are trapped there. The situation is very grim. The Russians have encircled your city, and Russian bombs have destroyed more than 90% of all buildings. You haven't had food or water for weeks, and chances are soon you will die. But then someone comes and says, I'm going to give you $20 million and free food and water for six months and a doctor to give you free medical care, but you will remain in this hopeless city. Would you think this is good news? Would you think salvation has come to you? I mean, isn't that what we want in life? Lots of free money, free food, and free and constant medical care? On the other hand, what if the International Red Cross says that the Russians have allowed for a personnel swap, and you can leave the city, but without the 20 million, and will be brought to a safe city where you will only have your basic needs taken care of, while someone else takes your place in the city of Mariupol? If you were a civilian trapped in Mariupol and given this choice, what choice would you take? to take the temporary luxuries but die, or to take assured salvation but live like a refugee temporarily, what would be good news to you? 
Of course, the great news is the one that brings true salvation, which is being evacuated to safety even without the luxuries of life. That is what we really need, to be rescued from a hopeless and deadly situation, to be given peace and assurance and safety. One would think that choices like this would be easy to make, but if you translate that situation into our current context, we often make the foolish choice. So many in this world sadly choose to take the money and the temporary luxuries of life, even with the certainty of eternal death, and forego the chance to have true eternal salvation, albeit without the temporary luxuries in the present. That's why we should not add to the gospel message and thus minimize its essential core, which is what mankind really needs. The gospel is about Jesus' death and resurrection to give us salvation and has nothing to do with gaining temporary material blessings and prestige and having a problem-free life. Now, apparently there were those living in Corinth who were advocating that resurrection from the dead doesn't happen, and therefore the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. Look how Paul addresses his issue in verses 5 to 9. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." In these verses, the Apostle Paul gives a partial list of those who saw the resurrected Jesus before His ascension to counter the false teachings and lies that Jesus didn't really resurrect from the dead. You see, the second truth that we need to understand, number two, is that we can be confident the eyewitness evidence of Christ's resurrection is very strong. Be confident the eyewitness evidence of Christ's resurrection is very strong. Sometimes I wonder if it wouldn't have been great to have digital cameras invented back then, then everyone would have documented on their phones this momentous occasion of Jesus' resurrection, and there would be no doubt in the minds of people today that He really rose from the dead. Do you think that would be the case? I don't think so. You see, there are people today who don't even believe in the moon landing, even with the many pictorial evidences, and some even believe the world is flat, even with the overwhelming picture evidence that the world is round. So even if we had digital cameras back then, people would still doubt and say it was an imposter Jesus, or the picture was photoshopped, or the event was staged. So in actuality, the evidence provided by Paul is perfect. Why? Because we have three different types of eyewitnesses. The first group of eyewitnesses Paul mentions in verse 5 is Peter and the Apostles. This would have been a group of people who would have known Jesus the best. They would have known if the person claiming he was the resurrected Jesus was an imposter or not. In fact, the apostle Thomas was asked to touch Jesus. It's like if I went away and sent a lookalike of mine who looked exactly like me and talked like me to show up at our house and claim they were me in front of my wife and kids. Do you think they could tell the lookalike is not really me? Of course they can, or I certainly hope they can. They should know it's not me because they know me so well. They've lived with me for over a decade. You know, I actually have a lookalike or doppelganger who lives in Sacramento, California. I don't think he looks like me, but Cindy and others say he does. Apparently, 
we look so much alike that once when he was in Vancouver visiting and eating at a restaurant, some of my friends saw him and thought it was me. They were so offended, I didn't tell them I was in Canada, even though I was right here in the Philippines. The same thing happened when he was in Houston, Texas, and I was here in Asia. Anyway, a few years ago, we happened to be in Europe at the same time, and we decided to meet up in Prague at the main train station. His children had never seen me or met me, and they were told to find me amongst the thousands at the train station. Well, they found me because I looked just like their dad, they said. If I said to those children, I'm your father, would they have believed me? Of course not. They would have known. Similarly, these apostles who spent more than three years with Jesus certainly would have known if it was actually Jesus or not, which was the point of Paul. And each of them died for this truth, knowing they had seen and met the resurrected Jesus. I'm reminded of what Chuck Colson wrote, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate, of which I was a part and indicted, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I know the resurrection is a fact. The second group that Paul mentions that serves as an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus in verse 6 was the 500 believers. And notice those words, at once. This letter to the Corinthian church was written just a few years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So Paul writes that some of these 500 people were still alive if any of them wanted to fact-check with them. But why was it important to note the fact that the appearance to such a large group of people was at the same time? Because there would have been corroboration and validation of what they just witnessed. If the resurrected Jesus only appeared to one person at a time or to a few people, some may doubt if what they saw was really true or they may even second-guess themselves if what they saw was accurate. But when you appear to 500 people all at the same time, the evidence of witness by such a large group would refute any doubts or the twisting of facts of the actual appearance. In fact, so sure of the eyewitness testimony of the 500 that Paul told his readers to seek them out if anyone had any doubts. The third group Paul mentions in verses 7 and 9 that serves as an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord were fierce skeptics like James, the half-brother of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, and also himself. If you don't remember, the siblings of Jesus didn't believe his claim as God's son in John chapter 7, verse 5. Often family members are the hardest to convince. And yet in the case of James, he saw his resurrected half-brother Jesus and was so convinced and so convicted of his belief that it transformed his life. And he went from a skeptic to becoming one of the foremost and vocal leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He would have had to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus did in fact resurrect from the dead. Paul said he himself was a skeptic at first, but not only a passive skeptic, he didn't believe and didn't want anyone else to also believe. 
so much so that he actively persecuted Christians who believed in the resurrected Jesus. But the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus, where ironically he was headed to persecute more Christians who believed in the resurrected Jesus. The Apostle Paul was now so sure of the resurrected Jesus that his life was also transformed like James's, that he went from persecuting Christians to someone willing to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ as he brought the message of the living Savior to all parts of the Roman world. As you can see, my friends, the eyewitness evidence of the resurrected Savior is very strong, and we can take confidence that our Savior lives. Now jump down to verses 12 to 19, where Paul will discuss the implications of what is at stake if the resurrection never took place. I read now verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently, an issue in Corinth affecting the church there was a false teaching going around that taught there was no bodily resurrection from the dead. This probably came from the Hellenistic or Greek philosophy that taught that the body wasn't any good and death brought a release of the soul from the prison body in which it was trapped. Paul refuted this false teaching and states that indeed bodily resurrection of the dead does happen because Christ is the prime example with much evidence to support his resurrection. In fact, to further his point on why this truth is so important, Paul hypothetically assumes that there is no resurrection of the dead and gives the wide-ranging implications of this heresy. I read now verses 13 to 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead did not rise. Paul the lawyer argues that if there is no resurrection of the dead, that means Christ didn't really rise from the dead. And if that is the case, then we can go ahead and close down all the churches around the world all pastors should quit and find another job. And billions through the centuries have been deceived. In fact, you might as well go and find yourself another religion to believe in because my words are empty and your faith is worthless. You see, number three, our Christian faith is worthless if the resurrection never happened. Our Christian faith is worthless if the resurrection never happened. Without the resurrection of our Lord, Jesus' words would have been lies when he claimed he would resurrect, and therefore he would have sinned and could not die for the sins of mankind. Jesus' divinity would come under question as God himself could not defeat death and therefore could not offer life to anyone. And there would be no way that we can be sure that the death of Christ even saves us from our sins. If we don't have a resurrected Savior, we don't have a true Savior. So we might as well close up shop pack it up, and go believe in another religion because Christianity would be a lie. In fact, this is what Paul writes in verse 15, we would all be liars because we claim something happened that never really happened. Now, verses 16 and 19 give us an even more critical problem if the resurrection didn't happen. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. 
In these verses, Paul writes that you and I would still be sinners because the death of Christ was ineffective to save us if Christ didn't rise from the dead. We would not have eternal life and no hope of forgiveness of sins if Christ didn't resurrect. In fact, those who died believing that Jesus Christ saved them went straight to hell, eternally separated from God because Jesus didn't have the power to save people from sins because He didn't even have the power to rise from the dead. If this was hypothetically true, and there is no resurrection from the dead, and Christ didn't resurrect, then this would make us as Christians the most pitiable and pathetic people because we live a present life with no hope of a glorious future in the next life. And without the hope of eternity, where God will make all things right and everyone's actions will be fairly judged or rewarded, then this life would be miserable because evil people would prevail. Our good life would not be rewarded. Injustices would go unpunished. And all the while, us trying to live for Christ is simply futile with no reason to do so because there is no life after this. If there are no future ramifications to our present actions, what is the point of trying to live out a Christ-like life? I might as well enjoy my life in sinful debauchery without ramifications because pity the one who tries to live a Christ-like life with no future rewards. As you can see, my friends, without Christ resurrecting, then our Christian faith is empty and our Christian life purposeless. That's why Christians all around the world throughout the centuries celebrate the truth of the resurrection of Christ, especially on Easter, because without it, there is no Christianity. And if no Christianity, then the world as we know it would not be the same. In Jason Benedict's book review of Alvin Schmidt's book, How Christianity Changed the World, he writes, Christianity's impact can be seen in many places, but none more evident than in the value we place on human life. Our modern-day value of human life was rooted in the teachings of Christ and the actions of early Christians in rescuing newborn babies abandoned on the trash heaps of Rome. Whether through infanticide, gladiatorial games, glorification of suicide or human sacrifice, there was an almost global attitude that human life was cheap before Christianity. The most beneficial institutions of our society find their roots in the influence of Jesus Christ. Early Christians founded the first hospitals, orphanages, and feeding programs combating the pervading view of the time that it would be better just to let the sick, the poor, and the orphans die. Monastic libraries provided inspiration for the first universities in the 12th and 13th century. Even governmental institutions and our concepts of liberty, justice, and equality are rooted in the law of God and biblical patterns. The list goes on with Christianity's impact on labor and economic freedom, science, art, architecture, literature, music, holidays, words, symbols, and expressions. Of particular interest to Christians in business is the way that Christianity has impacted labor and economic freedom. The Romans despised physical labor, but early Christians honored labor, trade, and skill. Jesus was a carpenter. Paul was a tent maker. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul dignifies labor by saying, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. The influences of the Christian work ethic on business and economics through the centuries 
is obvious. Douglas Winnell adds, Christianity's impact was not limited to the West. The influence of biblical principles abolished suti in India, the practice of burning widows on the funeral pyres of their husband. It stopped the killing of wives and concubines when tribal chiefs died in Africa, discouraged cannibalism, and helped to end the global slave trade in the 1800s. And while critics claim the Christian religion impeded the growth of science, history says otherwise. Dr. Rodney Stark, a professor of sociology and comparative religion, states, the leading scientific figures in the 16th and 17th centuries overwhelmingly were devout Christians who believed it was their duty to comprehend God's handiwork. Unlike the godless religions of Asia and the capricious gods of other faiths, the God of the Bible was a rational being whose creation operated on laws that were discoverable and could be applied to solving problems for the benefit of mankind, an understanding essential for the rise of science. All these wonderful historical developments, and it starts with Jesus Christ rising from the dead and making Christianity something worthy to believe in instead of something worthless. I now read verses 20 to 22. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul writes in these verses that we don't have to worry about our own bodily resurrection after we die. Since Christ is risen from the dead as a statement of fact, that it is a certainty that those who died in the Lord will also rise from the dead and be made alive again. Here Paul says that just as Adam's sin brought sin to the human race, Christ's bodily resurrection guarantees eternal life and a bodily resurrection for all those who place their trust in Jesus. You see, number four, Christ's resurrection assures us that those in Christ will certainly be resurrected. Christ's resurrection assures us that those in Christ will certainly be resurrected. The rest of this chapter, which we don't have time to unpack in this message, talks about what our resurrected bodies will be like, and it is a message of hope, assurance, and excited anticipation. I encourage you to read it. People often ask me if we will recognize our loved ones in heaven, if we will still remember the wonderful memories we had with them to help us look forward with anticipation of seeing them again. And the answer is yes, yes, yes. All because of Christ's resurrection and His conquering of death. When Jesus was bodily resurrected, He was able to eat with His disciples. He was able to walk with them and talk with them as they reminisced about the past like He did with Peter by the beach. They were able to touch Him and He them. And our resurrected bodies will be like that as well. Because of Christ's resurrection, those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ will be able to embrace and hug our loved ones again. We will be able to eat with them as the Bible promises, as we tell stories and recount the wonderful memories we have, all to the glory of God. That, my friends, is the only comfort for those whose loved ones have passed on this earth, that we will meet again and embrace once more and continue our relationship, but this time with a sinless, indestructible, no-aging body, that will remember and enjoy a never-ending fellowship. With our resurrected bodies, there will never be any more goodbyes, 
and all because of Christ's resurrection. I'm reminded of a story of a bright young girl of 15 who endured great suffering on a hospital bed, completely paralyzed on one side and nearly blind due to an incurable sickness. She heard the family doctor say to her parents as they stood by the bedside, she has seen her best days. Poor child. No, doctor, she exclaimed. My best days are yet to come when I see the king in his beauty. D.L. Moody writes, That is our hope. We shall not sink into annihilation. Christ rose from the dead to give us a pledge of our own rising. The resurrection is the great antidote for the fear of death. Nothing else can take its place. Riches, genius, worldly pleasures or pursuits, none can bring us consolation in the dying hour. Let me ask you, my friends, in your dying hours, what is it that will give you hope? What will you hope for? What is it that will give you peace? There is nothing other than our resurrection to life that will assuage our fear of death. That's why Jesus comforted Martha, whose beloved brother Lazarus had just died, in John chapter 11 with these words in verses 25 to 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The best is yet to come for the believer in our resurrected state, all because of the resurrection of Christ. Now jump down to verses 53 to 58 as we take a final look to see what the reality of Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection challenges us to do. Verse 53, so this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here the Apostle Paul writes that when the rapture of the church occurs, both Christians who are alive and Christians who have died will receive the resurrected bodies, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. In verse 55, Paul seems to mock death, saying that death doesn't have the final claim on those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Satan and sin were defeated when Christ died and rose again, and death is likewise defeated when God raises Christians to life. Easter is a reminder that ultimate victory is ours in Christ Jesus. A little boy and his father were driving down a country road on a beautiful spring afternoon. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a bumblebee flew in the car's window. Since the little boy was deathly allergic to bee stings, he became petrified. The father quickly reached out and grabbed the bee, squeezed it in his hands, and then released it. But as soon as he let it go, the young son became frantic once again as it buzzed by the little boy. The father sensed his son's terror. Once again, he reached out his hand, but this time pointed to his hand. There, stuck in his skin, was the stinger of the bee. You see this, he asked. You don't need to be afraid anymore. I've taken the sting for you. The Christian doesn't need to be afraid of death 
because Christ has taken the sting out of death and sin. Death should not hold fear for the believer. It stings those who do not have their salvation assured. But death should not scare the one whose life is placed in Christ, for Christ has taken the sting out of death and sin. Now, because of this truth, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 58 to end this chapter what we are to do. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In light of this truth about Christ's resurrection and victory of life in Him, that we are to live in faithfulness in this world. You see, my friends, the truth of our future state has real implications in the present world. The truth of our future state has real implication in our present life. And our fifth truth is this. Number five, a faithful life in Christ is worth living because death was conquered when Christ resurrected. A faithful life in Christ is worth living because death was conquered when Christ resurrected. So we can stand on our convictions, be focused on the work of the Great Commission, knowing that our work for Christ has eternal value and therefore not in vain. So every act of kindness we do for the Lord, every act of forgiveness on His behalf, every time we swallow our pride and admit our mistakes and wrongs, every time we show kindness, grace, compassion, care, mercy, and love are not in vain because it serves a greater eternal purpose. I love the words of the chorus in one of my favorite hymns, Because He Lives. It describes this principle well. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. And life is worth living just because He lives. Life is worth living because Christ lives. Life is worth living because He lives. Why? Because our temporary challenges, sufferings, difficulties are nothing compared with knowing the glorious future that awaits us because our Savior lives. So my friends, press on. Persevere in the Christian faith because Christ is risen. He is alive. My Redeemer lives. You know, the pyramids of Egypt are famous because they contain the mummified bodies of ancient Egyptian kings. Westminster Abbey in London is renowned because in it rests the bodies of English nobles and notables. Mohammed's tomb is noted for the stone coffin and the bones it contains. The Taj Mahal was built as a memorial to a wife of one of India's shahs. Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C. is revered, for it is the honored resting place of many outstanding Americans. But the garden tomb of Jesus is famous not because of what is inside, but because it is empty. As the angel proclaimed, He is not here, for He has risen. My friends, the resurrection of Christ should transform our lives. And so remember, number one, the essence of the gospel message is Jesus' death for our sins and His resurrection to affirm this truth. Number two, be confident the eyewitness evidence of Christ's resurrection is very strong. Number three, our Christian faith is worthless if the resurrection never happened. Number four, Christ's resurrection assures us that those in Christ will certainly be resurrected. Number five, a faithful life in Christ is worth living because death was conquered 
when Christ resurrected. May we proclaim with our lives in words and action, I serve a risen Savior today, and I do it with gladness, knowing what awaits me in eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths found in the Scripture. May we, as your followers, live faithfully knowing that you live. Father, I pray that the truths of the resurrection will transform our lives so that like Peter, James, and the apostles of old, we will proclaim in words and action boldly to this generation that we serve a risen Savior, and in Him there is life, life abundant and life eternal. Father, for those of us who perhaps are fearful and for those of us who perhaps are doubting, I pray that the truths of the resurrection would richly indwell our hearts so that we will live with boldness and courage, that we will live faithfully until the day we see you. How excited we are for the day we will see our Savior and we will be able to embrace the one who loves us and died for us and show forth our affection in return of how much we love you in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.